You're listening to the Redemption Church Podcast as we go through a series on the life and work of Jesus. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Tonight, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 27, Matthew chapter 27, and Mark chapter 15, Mark chapter 15. Those are our two points of reference for Scripture, so you can open your Bible with me if you have a physical Bible or if you use your phone, all of the above are same, uh, are fine, and you can follow along. If you don't have a Bible with you um, and you don't like to do it on the digital thing, it's fine. We'll have it up here on the screen. Uh, we're going to continue on in our study in the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, we'll be uh, talking uh, primarily about the trials of Jesus and the beginning of the crucifixion. And then we'll save uh, the rest of the crucifixion into the resurrection, uh, the burial and resurrection for next week. So that's a big, tall order. Crucifixion, burial, resurrection in one week but we're going to do it, right? I really thought that I was going to do trials and crucifixion tonight until I got to six typed pages of notes. And I said, at six typed pages of notes, if I don't stop, okay, you guys are never going home. Uh, usually around five pages of notes is, is about uh, where we get. So, uh, but the first half of the page is announcements and this type of stuff. So we're good. Um, so we're going to talk about the trials of Jesus and uh, I want to pray for us, ask God to bless our study tonight, and then we'll get started right away. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Lord, we know that you're with us. Lord, we know uh, that you guide us and uh, teach us, um, Lord, as we go through this, Lord. We know that, um, Lord, you have something to show us. Even if we've seen this a hundred times, Lord, you have something to show us uh, that will minister to our lives Lord, in the place and time that we are. Uh, so we just ask, Lord, that uh, this be a reminder of the things that you experienced for uh, us and your love for us, Lord, and it be a reminder of how much you love us, Lord, but also open our hearts and our minds to learn new things that maybe we haven't seen before. So thank you, Jesus. We love you. We praise you. And we give you all glory and honor. In your name, amen. Amen. Uh, so we're going to do the trials of Jesus. And if you don't know much about that, Jesus actually had six trials. He had six trials. Three before the Jewish people, okay? Um, so the Sanhedrin, uh, he had three trials before them. Uh, all three of them were illegal, okay? Breaking 18 Mosaic laws in the three trials before the Jewish people. The first thing they did was they took him to the house of, of Caiaphas, uh, that's totally illegal. They weren't supposed to do that. He was supposed to be before the full council of the Sanhedrin in a trial. And then, uh, they, took, and then they took him before Ananias, okay? And then they took him before the Sanhedrin, but it was at night, which is completely illegal according to the Mosaic law as well. There shall be no trials in the, the cover of darkness um, is one of the laws uh, in the Mosaic law. So all of those trials were illegal, and he had three trials before the Roman governors, okay? Uh, so you have, or before the Roman officials, I should say, because Herod was a Jewish governor or a Jewish king, but... 
He was basically a puppet for the Roman people. And so he would go to Herod. Herod would say, I don't know what to do with this guy. Send him, I mean, I'm sorry. He went to Pilate. Pilate said, this is a Jewish matter. He went off to Herod and Herod said, no, no, he's gonna be king. That's a a threat to Caesar. So he sent him back to Pilate. And that's what we're gonna be looking at tonight. But the first thing that we're gonna do is we're gonna talk about one of those strange things that happens in the Bible And the beginning of this chapter starts with Judas, Judas. Everybody asks, and and this week I had, uh, I give my students little cards and they ask questions and all of this type of stuff. And somebody asked a question about suicide. Is suicide mean you're automatically going to hell? And usually when people ask those types of questions, they bring up Judas, because Judas committed suicide. Is Judas in hell, okay? And that's really difficult for us to discern. But let's read the scripture. Let's see what it says as we get into Matthew 27. Uh, Then we'll get into those trials of Jesus as we see uh, how these men react. It says, so when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, verse 3, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasurer treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and uh, bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them to the potter's field as the Lord directed to me. I call this section uh, Judas, an unsure repentance, an unsure repentance, because here's what happens, okay? Judas, the Bible says, when he saw that Jesus was actually condemned, what did Judas think was going to happen? It was when he saw that Judas was condemned that he felt bad about it. Did he think that they were going to get Jesus and try Jesus and go, We were wrong. He was innocent. But thanks for helping us, Judas. You got some money. All is well. Jesus is free. Everything is going about the way that it should. I'm not sure what was going on in Judas's mind. He had to understand, based on what Jesus was telling him, that these guys were in search of him and that they wanted to kill him. But Judas's mind was set on money. Everything to him was money. You see it all throughout the scripture. You see that he was the treasurer. You see that when Mary anoints Jesus' feet with that costly oil, Judas is the one like, hey, why did we let her do that? She could have donated it to the ministry. Don't you know we don't have much money? She could have donated it. We could have sold it and used it to feed the poor. And the Bible says, and Judas said these things because he was the treasurer and he had been skimming off of the top. So there's deceitfulness in his heart already. And you think to yourself, how can a man who's walking around with Jesus for three years be stealing money from the ministry? 
Many years ago, I heard of a pastor who came over and planted a church. And sadly, this is Florida, you know, a Florida man. It's always a Florida man, right? And so 25 years of ministry, he came over with his best friend and they planted a church together. In 25 years of ministry, they find out that the best friend who was the associate pastor, lead elder of the church, had been skimming money out of the tithe. Now, in those 25 years, the church had grown really big, and they estimated, based on the deposits in his bank account, once they found out and everything, $1.5 million had been stolen from the tithe. 25 years of ministry. The deceitfulness in man's heart. The deceitfulness in man's heart. Money, that can do that to us. We get really consumed, right? We get really consumed. Now, Judas, he, he realized that, oh, this didn't turn out the way that I thought it was, so he took the money back. He took the money back. And the reason that I think this passage of Scripture is so important, for so many reasons, but look at the heart of the Pharisees. Uh, what, what? That's not our problem. Innocent blood, we don't care. Now, mind you, Jesus is still on trial during this time, and they're like, uh, you, for innocent blood, we could care less. We couldn't care less. I, I, you know, my grammar teachers, you know, working in a school, you get corrected with that all the time. I couldn't care less. I could not care any less, right? That's what they said to him, basically. And he was like, whatever, I can't take the money. So he threw it at their feet. And they're like, ooh, don't touch it. It's blood money. It's your blood money. You paid it for Jesus's blood. And now you're too good to touch it? Isn't it already on your hands? And now you're too good to touch it? Well, let's do something with it. We can't put it in the treasury because that would be wrong. We'd be breaking laws. And you didn't just break a whole slew of them? By putting Jesus on trial the way that you did? By paying somebody a bribe to actually get him arrested? That's one of the 18. For a proper Jewish trial, there can be no bribery involved at all. No one can be bribed not to get the person arrested, not to get the witnesses, none of those types of things. That's one of the 18 laws. It literally, they had to write it out because obviously that's a problem, right? Whenever there's a law... That usually means that happened one time. You know, there's some crazy laws in Florida, crazy laws in Florida, because that happened one time, almost always, right? Almost always. If you ever see some weird law. So anyway, so what they do is they end up buying this field, okay? Judas ends up hanging himself. Now, the Bible actually says, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, says that godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to salvation, Godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to salvation, okay? Now, did Judas have godly sorrow? Because it goes on to say that worldly sorrow leads to death. Worldly sorrow comes about usually because something happens, you feel bad about it, and you're like, ugh, I got caught, Okay, that's a lot of times. You guys know plenty of times, worldly sorrow, I got caught. Therefore, I'm really sorry that happened. Are you really, though? Would you have confessed 
if it worked out the way that, it, that you thought it would? Would you have actually confessed? Right? You see this a lot in men in ministry that fall into sexual sin. Oh, they're repentant once they get caught. But do you know how rarely men that fall into sexual sin in ministry actually come forward and say, guys, I just have to be honest with you. This is what's going on in my life. Almost never. They almost always get caught first, and then they feel really sorry. But they'll live in that sin for two years without ever saying anything for years and do all of these types of things. That stuff happens all the time. That's worldly sorrow because I got caught, okay? And the Bible says that leads to death. That leads to death. Now, from my perspective, and again, this is my perspective, right? If Judas had truly been sorry, who would he have sought out to seek repentance knowing who his master was? But he didn't. He sought the Pharisees. He sought the sorrow of the men who led him into it as opposed to the forgiveness of the man that he betrayed. If you wrong your brother, the scripture says, go directly to your brother. Don't go to the guys that helped you wrong him and say, we really shouldn't have done that. That was bad. He should have gone to Jesus. He didn't. He felt really bad and he took his own life. Now, we're not judge and jury. I'm just showing you what you see here in Scripture. Where did Judas go when he felt bad? He didn't go to his master that had loved him for three years, that looked at him and told him, I know what you're going to do. Just go do it. He didn't go back to Jesus. Guys, when we stumble, when we fall, when we betray Jesus, go back to Jesus. Go back to Jesus. Don't go to the people that led you there. Don't go to these. Go back to Jesus because he is the one with the power and the authority to forgive. He's the only one. He's the only one. So let's look at Jesus now as he stands before Pilate. And this is in verse 11 in Matthew 27. Verse 11, Matthew 27. He says, now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, did you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now, the feast of the governor, uh, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had delivered him up to him. Have nothing to do, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, besides, while he was sitting on his judgment uh, seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two of you do you want to, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? 
they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Let's take a look at Barabbas. Barabbas, what's in a name? You guys know as well as I do, when you're talking about names in the Bible, they're significant. They have meaning. They have meaning, okay? So, Jesus, when he was asked if he was king of the Jews, he responded to Pilate, you said so, okay? It is so, okay? You said so, all right? And then the Pharisees began to accuse him, and Jesus didn't respond at all, which is a fulfillment of the Psalms, okay, that says, like a sheep led to his slaughter, all right? So that, that he remained silent. So he would respond to the Roman governor, but he refused to respond to the Pharisees, okay? He knew that the Pharisees were doing a great wrong in this, and he did not want to give them anything at all in this moment, okay? But to Pilate, he wanted to give him the, he was the Roman governor. He wanted to give him the respect that was due to him as a citizen of this place. He responded to him. Okay? So, he's recognizing Pilate's authority in that moment. He's responding to him, but he does not recognize the authority at all of the Pharisees when they accuse him. He stays silent. He stays silent before them. So, you look at this next section, and it says, Pilate was accustomed to release a prisoner each year at this time of the year. So, Pilate, which was Passover, okay, it was the feast. So, Pilate picked the worst criminal that they had in prison at the time, the worst one. Now, some people say that he was a zealot, which means that he was against the Romans, right? And there was definitely some of that in him. And others say that maybe he was a murderer. He was the worst of the worst. And Pilate said, there is no way that the people are going to pick this guy. Jesus is innocent, and you can see at the end of this passage, Pilate is shocked by their decision. He says, but, but, but what has this guy done? You chose this guy? Ah, oh, this didn't work, right? This didn't work for me at all. So he says, what has this guy done? So he picks the worst criminal by the name of Barabbas, and he offered them before the people. The people picked Barabbas and asked for Jesus to be crucified. Now, uh, we've talked about deeper meanings of names and, and here we are again, Bar Abbas. Several years ago, I don't know if we have any soccer fans in here. Soccer fans, right? Uh, so I don't love soccer, but I lived in Peru, so you have to. You like soccer, Rob? You seem like a soccer guy, right? Okay, so listen. When you like soccer, FIFA is a big deal. The World Cup. The World Cup. It happens every four years, Right? It's kind of like the Olympics of soccer. Yeah, you guys all know what I'm talking about. And I remember living in Peru. And of course, in Peru, soccer is everything, okay? So I'm living in Peru, and the World Cup is on, all right? And the guy that I'm serving with in Peru, uh, he's from the Netherlands, okay? Now, he grew up here in Miami, but his heritage is from the Netherlands, Okay? And so the Netherlands are playing in the World Cup. So I don't remember what year this is. It's either 2008 or 2012. It's one of the two. The Netherlands are playing in the World Cup, and they've got these orange jerseys, and I'm watching them play, 
And my friend's name is Vander Cody. Vander Cody. And I look at the names on the back of the jersey, and it says Van Dolphin, Van this, Van that. I was like, are these all your relatives? What's going on here? And he said, no. In the Netherlands, we use the term son of and our father's name as our last names. So Van der Cody, Van means son of der Cody. Okay? And so he's like, so that became my family name once we moved to the United States as our last name. But really, it means son of der Cody. And so do all of those names from the Netherlands mean the same thing. Well, in the Hebrew culture, it was the same. Your last name was Bar, whatever your dad's name was. Bar Abbas, right? This particular guy, son of Abbas, you guys have probably heard that before, right? Abba, father. It means father. This guy's name is son of fathers. Son of fathers. Hold on just one second. Think about that for a minute. Son of fathers. Who is he? He is you. He is me. The worst of the worst. Guilty. There is no reason that this man should be set free. He deserves the cross. He deserves everything that should have come to him. He is the son of fathers. Every single one of us in this room is a son or daughter of a father. We are sons and daughters of fathers. He is every man. And so here you have Pilate, unbeknownst to himself, offering Jesus to be crucified in the place of every man. Jesus says, I'll take the place of the worst of the worst criminals. Of the worst of the worst criminals. What a beautiful depiction of the gospel right there in the name of Barabbas. Now, nobody knew, nobody thought of that in the moment, but names in the Hebrew culture are so important, and God doesn't miss this. When he put this situation together, it's on purpose that this guy's name is Barabbas. It's interesting because his first name is Jesus as well. Jesus, the son of a father, or Jesus the Son of God. Well, Jesus, the Son of God, is going to take the place of Jesus, the Son of a Father. A guilty man that deserves death. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The payment for death, I mean for sin, is death. It's like you were in prison waiting for death, and Jesus took your place so you didn't have to. That's what this is about. That's what this moment. So I entitled this message, An, an Unfair Exchange, An Unfair Exchange. Why? Because Barabbas, in this moment, gets a second chance. He gets a second chance. He was put in prison for a crime that he was guilty of. He was the worst of the worst. And Pilate 
God can use anybody at any moment. If you read the scripture, you see that he even used a donkey. So of course he can use Pilate. Of course he can use Pilate. Pilate picks Barabbas, brings him forward. Which one of these two men? And guess what the Pharisees did? The Pharisees walked through the crowd and they said, Barabbas, pick Barabbas, pick Barabbas. The scripture says they convinced the people to chant Barabbas. Barabbas, Barabbas, pick Barabbas. Then everybody was yelling, Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. And here's the thing. Most commentators believe there were people in that crowd that were at that triumphal entry when Jesus was riding through on the horse going, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, Hosanna. And now they stand, Barabbas, let Barabbas go free. Well, what should I do with Jesus? Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And the whole crowd starts chanting, crucify him. This will happen later on in the book of Acts with the apostle Paul. Now, Paul's not on the stage. Some missionaries that work with Paul are on the stage in the city of Ephesus in this huge amphitheater, 25,000 people crowd in there, and they're chanting for hours on in Diana, the goddess of the Ephesians. They just chant it long, long time. Diana, the goddess of the Ephesians. There are people that walked into that arena, and they're like, what are we doing here? I don't know. Just start chanting. Yes! Crowd mentality is so dangerous. It's so dangerous. You have to be careful. That's why the Bible says, be careful the crowds you keep. Why? Because if I'm surrounded by ungodly people, I might find myself chanting, crucify him. What? I didn't mean it. I didn't mean to do that, Lord. I didn't mean to say that, Lord. I didn't mean it. It's easy for us to get wrapped up in the crowd. It's easy for us to do some of these things. So when we look at Barabbas, there's such an incredible story of the gospel inside of his name. Jesus took the place of every man when he went to the cross. And that's why I love the trials of Jesus. When I look at these, I see such an amazing picture of grace, such an amazing picture of God's love for us. No matter how bad, the worst criminal, you couldn't be worse than the worst criminal, surely not, right? There's so many situations in the Bible where God picks these very strange characters that have done really horrible things in their life, and he says, that's my child, and I love him. David. Great stories about David, but the guy's a mess. God said, man after my own heart. They're like, what? Yeah. God continues to love us in the midst of our filthiness, all right? So it says here, when Pilate, in verse 24, continuing on, when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he went over and he took some water and he said, I don't want anything to do with this. He washed his hands and he says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. And all the people began to say, his blood be on us and our children. Then Pilate released for them Barabbas 
and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So Pilate said, I know this guy is innocent. And he looks at them in shock when they pick Barabbas and he's like, but what has this man done to you? Why do you choose Barabbas to go free when Jesus is clearly innocent? His plan backfired. This is one of those politicians, one of those public officials that's like, okay, I don't want to lose face with the people. I want to make sure that everything is good. So I'm going to let them make the decision. This is going to be so easy. I'm not going to make the decision. This guy's innocent. Let him go free. I'm not going to do that because that's going to cause a riot. So I'm going to put them in a position that they have to make the decision, and they're going to make this decision, and it's going to be a no-brainer because I'm going to put the worst of the worst up here, and they're going to pick Jesus because there's no way they'd let this guy go free. But backfires on him. And he's like, I don't know what to do. I don't want to be a part of this. I don't want my name on this. Well, his name's on it, in case you didn't notice, right? Pilate. The name is synonymous with the trial of Jesus, where Jesus is chosen to be crucified. Everybody knows Pilate washed his hands with the situation, but did that matter? No, it doesn't. Does that make him innocent of it? No, it doesn't. Okay, so here we have at this time, okay, he's, he washes his hand and all the people say, let his blood be on us and our children, his blood on us. Now, what they mean is a curse. If, if he's who he says he is, then we're cursed for death forever because we just killed God in flesh. Let it be on us and our children. Let this curse of death be on us and our children if we're wrong, because we believe so much that we're right. But here's the thing. Again, just a beautiful picture of God's love, of his grace, and this time of his incredible mercy, of his incredible mercy. Look at the statement, his blood be on us and our children. When we look at this passage of scripture, it's a profound statement. And I think it has a double meaning. I think it has a double meaning. The one that they intended and the one that God intends. His blood be on us and our children. The guilt of the crucifixion belongs to us, our sin our being enemies of God. Every single one of us is guilty of the crucifixion of Jesus. Why did Jesus go to the cross? He went to the cross not because Pilate sent him there, not because the Pharisees sent him there. He already showed us in the Garden of Gethsemane he had the power to stop every single one of those men. He could have. He just had to open his mouth. He said, I am, and they all fell on their backs. Roman soldiers, Pharisees, the like, young, old, every single one of them, they all fell on their backs. He had the power to stop all of this. Pilate didn't send Jesus to the cross. The Pharisees didn't send Jesus to the cross. Jesus chose to go to the cross. He chose to go to the cross. And the scripture is so clear when it says, in Ephesians 1, 7, it says, in him we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of grace. His blood on us. You're sitting here tonight because of his blood on you. Not in a curse, but in love. But in love. It's the blood of Christ that redeems us. There is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. If Jesus didn't go to the cross, none of these men that were standing there trying to crucify him would ever have the opportunity for redemption. But because his blood on us and our children, we can be redeemed. What they meant for a curse, God intended for mercy and grace. His blood on us. His blood on us. John 1.17 says that we are cleansed through his blood. We are cleansed through his blood. Jesus says, Father, forgive them when he's on the cross. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. That's why I think it's easy to see that this passage of Scripture easily has a double meaning. Father, forgive them. They have no idea. They're, they're saying, yeah, bring the curse on if, it's, if he's not. If he, we believe so, so much that he's blaspheming, that he's not God. Bring the curse on on them and their children. But you and I know that because of the blood on the cross, whether it's those individuals that were standing there, if they would accept, repent, and believe that Jesus Christ is who he said that he was, repent of their sins and accept him as their Lord and Savior, they could be saved. Not the curse, the blessing, his blood on us. The blessing, his blood on us. A little side note here. I think it's really interesting, okay? Pilate, in this situation, when he's watching his hands and doing all of this, his wife told him he had a vision. All of these things are happening. And, uh, you know, Pilate didn't want anything to do with Jesus. And yes, Pilate really made the wrong decision in the situation. Uh, He should have really put on his big boy pants and said, This guy's innocent. Let him go free. But I already said, Pilate didn't send Jesus to the cross. Jesus sent Jesus to the cross. Jesus sent Jesus to the cross. He had already submitted that will in the garden, and he was going. No matter if Pilate had to let him free in that moment or not, he was going. So yes, Pilate made a bad decision. And here's the reality, is this, Pilate's a politician, Right? And we have issues with that today in our culture. Politicians. And we look to politicians and we hope that politicians will fix the spiritual condition of our country. I was scrolling through yesterday, and I don't think it's by accident. I was scrolling through a social media account, and I saw this quote by Dr. Stephen Lawson, and it says, no political solution can fix the spiritual problem. The only thing that can fix this broken world is the hope of Jesus Christ. If we go backwards and we say, Pilate should have made the right decision and let Jesus go free, it doesn't fix the spiritual condition. Only Christ on the cross 
fixes the spiritual condition of what's going on right there. We've talked about the spiritual condition of these men. They gave blood money. Then Judas said, I don't want this blood money. He's innocent. And they said, well, (laughs) we don't accept blood money. Oh, you just give it. That makes you better. You just give blood money. You pay a price for someone's head, yet you won't take money back because it's blood money, because you're going to be breaking the law. You broke 18 laws, taking him to trial in the middle of the night without witnesses or without anything there, yet you won't take this little bit of money. The condition of the heart of the people all around a whole crowd of people that can be convinced to choose the worst of the worst when they know that Jesus is innocent, that can be convinced to cry out towards an innocent man to crucify him when most of the people standing in there in that place probably had no clue whatsoever any amount of evidence or any amount of justification for Jesus even being on trial. The people had only seen him heal people, feed people, taking care of the lost, the widows, asking men to stand up after they had been paralyzed for 38 years, stand up and walk, stretch out your hand, and now it has new life when it was crippled before. The leprosy is gone from him. The child is raised from the dead. Lazarus is raised from the dead. They had only seen Jesus do these amazing things, yet they stood there and they said, crucify him. Yeah, the guy that raised Lazarus from the dead, crucify him. Yeah, the guy that fed us on the mountainside, crucify him. Yeah, the guy that that healed my, my family, crucify. We don't know whether those people there were there or not, but we do see and understand the spiritual condition of the day was bad. And there was no politician that was going to fix that. Oh, they had a Jewish guy in government, Herod. The Jewish guy in government was more problem than he was help to the people. Guys, it doesn't matter who's in the White House. That's not going to fix the spiritual condition of America, of the church Only Christ can fix that through his word and through his power. We cannot put our hope in any politicians, guys. Only in Christ Jesus. Only in Christ Jesus. Right? Only in Christ Jesus. Let's go on from here. It's already late. I don't know how far we're going to get into this. I I only have like four more pages left, y'all. I'm kidding. Uh, about, uh, okay, so we can do this, all right? Uh, so in Mark chapter 15, we see that Pilate uh, wishing, it's verse 15, it says, Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified, okay? And the soldiers led him away inside of the palace that Jesus' headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. They clothed him in purple cloth, twisting together a crown of thorns, and put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, 
who was coming from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And like I said, we're going to get into the, some of the things that happened while he was on the cross, but we're going to get him to the cross tonight, okay? So he's scourged. He's beaten 39 times as Roman custom because 40 would kill a man. He's beaten with a cat of nine tails. He'd be tied to a small column, chained or, or, or lashed with leather straps. And they would take a cat of nine tails, which was leather, and they would tie little thorns in it, little shards of iron or whatever sharp thing that they could find. And they would send it over, and some of those strands were longer than others to make sure that they came over the shoulder and grabbed parts of the front. And as they pulled them off, it was ugly. I don't need to describe exactly what was happening there. It's brutal. It's horrible. But this is what Jesus experienced. So he was bloody, and he was beaten, and he was taken into the governor's palace. Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15 tells us that he was not even recognizable as a man after this happened. Between the crown of thorns being pressed upon his head, as he's going to walk what they call the Via Dolorosa, Dolorosa, which is the way of suffering. As he's going to walk that path through the middle of town and go up to, to Calvary, to Golgotha, he's not even recognizable as a man. There's so much blood. The flesh is so torn. His body so beaten. Him so crippled over. He hardly looks like a man. They take him in. They put purple cloth on him and a crown of thorns. And if you've ever been to Israel or anywhere in the deep desert, maybe you've seen an acacia bush. An acacia bush, man, the thorns are like this. We had them in Ica where I lived in Peru. The thorns are like this. They're huge. They're huge. I'd never seen anything like it. And when I saw that bush and their viney little twiggy bushes that lay low to the ground in some spots. Some of them will grow up into a tree. When I saw that bush when I lived in Peru, I was like, oh, crown of thorns. That's exactly what that was. And yes, they're all over Israel. They just grow wild in places, and there's these gigantic thorns on it. They mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews. They were bowing down. Whoa! king of the Jews. He said he's king of the Jews. Okay, they've got him all dressed in, in kingly garb, and they're making fun of him as the blood soaks and saturates all of this. Again, the depravity of man. The depravity of man. They beat him in the head with the stick that they gave him. They gave him a reed, kind of like a scepter, a crown, a purple robe, a reed. Oh, he's got his scepter. He's got his crown. He's got his robe. Look at him. He's king. Now bow down to him. And then they take the reed out of his hand and they smack it upside of his head. And then they spit in his face, the Bible says. They spit in his face and they make fun of him. The depravity of man. We read this stuff and we're like, oh my goodness, these guys are horrible. Every single one of us is capable. We're all capable of this. We're all capable of this. So now Jesus is going to be making his way up this way of suffering, and he's going to be carrying his cross, and whether he's carrying the whole thing or just the stick that gets put up when they get there, that's more likely. He's carrying the part that his arms would go on, and he's trying to carry this gigantic log, and he's been beaten, and he's been made fun of, and he's got blood running down his face, and he can't see anything. He falls to the ground. 
And if you've ever been on the Via Della Rosa, they believe that he fell multiple times and they have little statues built along the way. This is where he fell the first time. And this is where uh, Veronica, and this is where his mother did this. And now this is where we get the Shroud of Torin because of this and all of these types of things, Veronica's cloth where it, she wiped his brow. And a lot of this is tradition. It's not scripture, okay? Just be clear of that if you end up visiting the Via Dolorosa, okay? So as he's walking up this path, and this part is beautiful. He falls to the ground, and the Roman soldiers grab someone from the side. They're like, you, carry that for him. Now, the Roman soldiers had right by law to ask someone to carry their packs. And Jesus even mentions it, and he says in Matthew chapter 16, he says, if they ask you to carry it one mile, okay, that's translated, it would really be a kilometer, okay, one kilometer, Carry it too for them and do it joyfully, right? So Jesus refers to this custom earlier in his teachings. Now, Simon the Cyrene, he had been traveling through and he just stopped along the side of the road to go, what's going on here? Ooh, this looks bad. Yeah, you, come, carry the cross. Imagine if he had known what he was really doing. He's carrying the cross of Jesus Christ, the Savior, who is about to be crucified for the sins of the world. Here's the cool thing about this. Jesus goes on ahead with the Roman soldiers. Simon picks up the cross and he follows him. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. What a cool depiction of what it means to follow Jesus. Here, Christ suffering, dying for the sins of the world and Simon picks up the cross and he follows him. He does it, he obeys. He could have protested. He could have said, no, I'm a weary traveler. I've been going long. Now he would have gotten beaten, but he could have protested. A lot of times we don't like to do the difficult stuff, but Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Simon the Serene took up the cross of Christ and he followed Jesus up to Calvary. And that's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to do. And we're going to stop there because it's getting late, y'all, right? We got to eat dinner. It's like 620 something. I know when we're having a good time, it just goes flies. I look over and I'm like, you're kidding me already. I think I've only been going 10 minutes. Feels like, okay. But listen, here's the reality, okay. You are called to take up your cross, to follow Jesus. Sometimes that's uncomfortable, you guys. Sometimes it puts us in weird positions. Simon was in a weird position. Simon was in a strange position. He had been traveling with his two boys, and he had to say, sons, wait here. I'll come back and find you at the end once I get there, right? And so uh, we, we, we have to do this. Next week, we're going to get into the details of Calvary, and now I'm going to give you some homework. Y'all ready? You didn't know it was school, did you? You didn't know it was school, but we're back in school, and I'm accustomed to giving homework. So now you have homework. Here's your homework, okay? Read Psalm 22 and Isaiah 52, 13 through 15, and chapter 53. Those are going to prepare you for what we're going to talk about next week, and it's awesome. And maybe you've seen it before. Maybe you've put it all together before, but it's really cool. If you don't read it, okay, uh, when I give you a test, you're going to fail. 
I'm kidding. Uh, but it is just to kind of prepare your mind, your heart, for what we're about to see in the crucifixion of Jesus and how all of this was pre-planned. All of it was set up, okay? So we want to prepare our hearts tonight for communion. And the thing that we celebrate when we celebrate communion is the very thing that we're talking about right here. Christ taking our place. The son of fathers, the daughter of fathers, the seed of Abraham, sin in all of us. Christ took my place on the cross. The Bible says that we were enemies of God. Okay, so as Justin comes forward, we're going to prepare our hearts for communion. Thinking about the things that Christ did for us. About that, that taking our place, our replacement, when we deserved it. When our penalty should have been that. I'm guilty of sin. I'm guilty of sin. You're guilty of sin. It should be your penalty. But he took it. He took it for you because he loves you. He took it for you. So it's his blood on us that has given us this sweet fellowship that we have with him. Amen. Let's prepare our hearts. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that as uh, just your body, Lord, we can remember what you did on the cross, your blood and your body sacrificed for you. As your church, Lord, we celebrate these things. We know, Lord, that you did it because you loved us. So, Lord, prepare our hearts now that we may be able to do this in celebration and remembrance of your work, of your redemption sacrifice, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. This is Pastor Daniel Williams with Redemption Church. Thank you so much for listening to this message. You can subscribe to this podcast via iTunes, Google Play, or YouTube, so you never miss a message. The mission of Redemption Church is to pursue and to proclaim Jesus, and we would love to have you partner with us. Feel free to share these messages with your family and friends. And also, if you'd like to donate to the ministry, go to redemptiondb.com. God bless you.